Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins and I'm sitting here with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. Hi, Jasper. Hi, Mark. <laughs> happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New, New Year. Decade, happy cetera, New Decade, etc. As Barbara Lewis sang on the immortal Hello Stranger, it seems like a mighty long time since we recorded the last episode. So, Largely because it is a mighty long time since we recorded. Yes, you pointed that out. It's a mighty long time. How do you define mighty and long? Three weeks. Three weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so hello to all of you out there. A warm welcome to any new listeners. This week we'll be talking a little later about the New Zealand writer Chris Bork. Burke, maybe it's Burke, B-O-U-R-K-E. I should have asked him, really. (laughs) I know, I'm reluctant to say Burke. We'll also be talking about a 1992 audio interview with the Queen of American Folk Music, Joan Byers. First, however, we are saluting the 40th birthday of Are You Glad to Be in America? A startlingly great album by James Blood Alma. Mark is here to tell us... (laughs) um, all about <clears throat> the wonders, the marvels of... Something of a of, fan. Something of a fan of Mr. Alma. Tell, uh, tell, who is he? Well, I mean, he is an African-American, jazz in the loosest possible sense, guitar player, who first really emerged as part of Warnett Coleman's band, working with Warnett Coleman, then went out on his own. I first... I can't remember who first played me. I'm glad to be in America, the single, possibly our colleague Martin Collier. And... I was absolutely riveted by it. I mean, just not flat by it. Mm. This is a time when post-punk kind of ruled the waves here. And uh, whilst I, I kind of I got post-punk and I, I appreciated where it was coming from, I didn't like much of it. Mm. Always liked black music. And also, as a guitar player, this was the first really new voice I'd heard playing guitar for right. an awfully long time. I saw his first ever show at the Notre Dame Hall in London, supported by This Heat, which is this the year the album's released. It came out here on Rough Trade, which is an interesting label for it to come out on yeah. for, for a start. And the live show was fantastic. The sound was terrible. The Notre Dame Hall hasn't got great acoustics, but and a lot of people were there, sort of fringes and raincoats. The post-punk brigade were there. And that was it. I was mm. completely sold on him. I saw him so many times after that. Right. Basically, every time he came to England for about yep. for almost like eight years, okay. I, I, I'd go and see him. Wow. Sometimes the music was extraordinarily aggressive, very, a lot of slap bass, a lot of very busy drums and bass. But this sort of nagging guitar, it's yes. really, it's almost like a staccato nagging instrument. And, I mean, I love Jimi Hendrix, and this is really almost the first new voice on the guitar I'd heard since then. Right. 
So a key influence on your own playing, oh, uh, I, 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 I surmise. Yeah. Certainly what I've been doing in more yeah. recent years, without a doubt. It's interesting, when my previous band, Throttling Tommy, played Edwin Pouncey, Savage Pencil, came down to see us. One of the first things he said afterwards, he says, oh. you, you, know, you like James Blood Ulmer, don't you? you know? <laughs> yeah. um, no, I, I, huge. The album was fantastic. Obviously didn't sell very well. He then, because CBS at that time were getting interested in what they could do with these sort of out there sort of... Well, the, the term was punk jazz, mm. but actually it was an area where funk and out there jazz intersected. Defunct being another band, and yes. not a million miles away, another band I loved. CBS signed him, and he made three albums for CBS, which were, shall we say, more listenable in the sort of immediate sense. Black rock music, which has got like a, almost a soul ballad on mm. it. Odyssey... And, and then his sort of it fizzled, and he he disappeared back into the margins of playing sort of the New York loft scene and yes. so on and so forth. I saw him a few years back with the, the punk funk all stars, which was <laughs> uh, Ronald Shannon Jackson, who he played with a great deal, Vernon Reed from Living Colour, mm. people like that. It was, mm. it was sort of Joe Bowie on trombone from Defunct. That sort of Black Rock Coalition, Black Rock Coalition, where yeah. it meets the the loft jazz jazz scene. Anyway, I mean, just a huge fan. And I, I think that the album, but particularly the single, Are You Glad to Be in America, really stands up today. It's an absolutely fantastic piece of work. Absolutely. Yeah, we've been listening to some of it in the office. Yeah. And it's, just been, it's really exciting music. It really it's is. It's pretty thrilling and wild. And, yeah. But it's not, I think, it's not as... I mean, I love Ornette Coleman yeah. and that kind of free jazz. I think James Fulton was a bit more listenable than that for someone who might maybe not isn't quite as into... That sort of freedom, certainly on IE, oh, glad to be in America. Yeah, no, it, it, it's interesting. I mean, there is a sort of. He adopted Ornette's harmonic theory. Don't ask me what that is. I've read it about it time after time. Still don't uh, understand and, and it. Still don't understand <laughs> it. <laughs> James Bloodlmer always talks enormously affectionately about Ornette Coleman's being a kind of hugely important thing. Apparently, when they got together, yeah, basically, I mean, Ornette Coleman's living in a loft in Lower East Side, I think, in New York, and they basically spent three months just the two of them, just sax and guitar playing together, just throwing ideas back and cool. forth. That's mentioned in the so three pieces yeah. on Armour my own page this week and the first is by Vivian Goldman and he talks about he says that they met in 73 and talks about those six months exactly. where they, they just worked together kind of yeah. I know it was every day but it's interesting that so this is yeah Vivian Goldman October 1980 which is right kind of then right yeah, yeah exactly and what I remember is this great cassette that NME did, the C81 cassette. Yeah. So in amongst all the kind of, you know, usual post-punk yep. stuff and postcard stuff, yep. so, you know, Orange Juice and yes. Wah Heat and all that kind of stuff, was Are You Glad to Be in America? Yeah. And you started to read about him in yeah. NME and... and Vivian was very hot on all that yeah. stuff. And she sort of, you know, she, she writes about, you know, she says the reason why this black American jazz musician gets two pages in this white English rock paper <laughs> is pretty laughable. And then she sort of says, because he's being associated with all this kind of, yep. you know, punk jazz stuff. Nice. I remember that time, you know, with 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 great fondness. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I think the music was really yeah. exciting. I, I mean, you know, one of the things is, is that shortly after this, 
all around the same sort of times, James Chanson contortions are emerging and defunct, as I said. And if you were like me, a white boy who liked black music and was feeling fairly alienated by the sound of British post-punk, that was the place to go. And via that, I got into... I know it sounds completely different, but Kid Creole and the Coconuts, for yeah. example. I mean, suddenly what was coming out of New York seemed a whole lot more musically exciting than stuff coming out of this country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vivian writes rather beautifully about Armour's unique sound. Blood's guitar is a talkative instrument. It can chatter like a cheery yep. chipmunk or squirrel, bubble and babble a stream of witticisms and philosophies, huddle you hastily through whole sequences of feelings. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's just right thrilling to, to listen to, yeah. isn't he? I mean, the, so the second piece is is Don Snowden talking about mm. jazz punk or punk jazz and says it's almost totally a New York phenomenon. Actually did better here than did anywhere else in America. I'd say it had th- more yeah. resonance than England. Partly because people like Jeff Travis yes. were sort of, you know, were kind of fast onto it. Yeah. As you mentioned, the fact it was on Rough Trade was significant. Sure. But Don writes about the that kind of intersection between the no-wave scene in New York mm-hmm. and, and this sort of out-there punk jazz style. And and we haven't even mentioned James Chance. You've mentioned I, Defunct. Yeah. But, but I, they, they I, were all, there was uh, a spectrum I, 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 of... I, 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 did, I did mention James. You Chance. did, did you? I'm yeah, sorry, so. I'm sorry. <laughs> Beg your pardon. Okay, so Don writes about James Chance, writes about Defunct. It's funny, Vivian Goldman mentions James Chance because she can't stand his music. It's kind of interesting that she sees that to be quite a big difference, actually, between that punk jazz and what Blood Almond's doing. I, 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 yeah. I, I think one of the things is is that there's a sort of... James Blood Almond's serious, and there's something inherently unserious about James Chance, that his pose, his notion of funk and jazz were adoptions, was a coat he put on. I think that's sure. absolutely uh, right. With James Bud Ornette. That's the real through, thing. You know, that's the, I mean, because of his connection with Ornette Coleman... Yeah. You but also, of, it's just, you know, yeah. that's who he is. Absolutely, absolutely. You, you know. But he's also very funny. That's one of the things noticed in the Vivian Goldman interviews. Yeah. He, the way he expresses himself is just entertaining, and he's sort of got a sense of humour, which I think you'd have to in his position, given that he didn't have the easiest of careers, no. if you will, through the music industry because of what he was doing, because he was a black man in America, etc., etc. No, that's, that's true. Interestingly, he's quite sort of like dismissive of the blues in the Vivian Goldman interview. Yeah. And yet later on in the 90s, he effectively became a blues man. He reinvented himself. He, he spent a lot of time revisiting the blues, did a whole series mm. of albums which are just blues, mm-hmm. which may have just been his way of reinvestigating his own roots. But, mm. I mean, he's from South Carolina, which is always an interesting thing in itself. Yeah, um, via Pittsburgh. See, that's right. Yeah. You know. And his father was a preacher. Uh, yeah. And he, he, he sang in gospel that's right. groups. I can't really imagine him singing in the gospel because his, his voice is, is a, <laughs> let's just say it's gruff. <laughs> But it's rather wonderful too. Yeah. I just made, you, you make a very good point about he's a great conversationalist yeah. as well, isn't he? I mean, I, the, and that's reflected in the third piece from 1998, where Jason Gross of Perfect Sound Forever has quite a long conversation, mm. looking back on mm-hmm. the early 80s, particularly with with Alma. And it's just really interesting to hear him talk about kind of beef art and mm-hmm. pill. He supported public image and not, was knocked out by them. Yeah. He, yeah, he was absolutely knocked out by public image, which is really interesting. Ab- you know. Absolutely. So so all of this stuff is going on at the same time, yeah. and it is, it is just really interesting. But um... There's one like, sad thing. Um, one of my old managers managed Annie Whitehead, the trombone player, right? and she did a tour with her band, was touring with James Blood. And apparently James Blood, he was a Muslim, black Muslim, yeah. and he didn't believe women could be musicians. 
he had some pretty old-fashioned attitudes. He kind of, like, gave her a pass because she was good enough, you know. Right. He also, uh, he had a guy whose basic job was to go around and score smack for him in every, every place they visited in Germany and right. France and so on and so forth. So at that time, certainly... He, Heroin, which is not uncommon in the New York kind of so, you know, almost scene. a rigueur. Almost a rigueur. He survived. He's still he's still going. I believe he's pretty much in a wheelchair now. He's he's, okay. he's fairly infirm. He's quite old now because he was kind of old then. You yeah, know, he, no, he, absolutely. He, he was no spring chicken in 1980. You mm. know. So anyway, fantastic. I mean, like I said, a hero, a real hero of mine. Fantastic. Are you glad to be in America? Also free on the RBP homepage this week are three pieces by the Kiwi journalist Chris Bork. Three very amusing pieces, actually. The first of <laughs> them about Billy Idol. Hurrah! These are all for a great New Zealand publication called Rip It Up that Chris edited. So Billy Idol, 1987. Jerry Marsden of Jerry and the Pacemakers from 1997. And then an interview with Solomon Burke from 2002. It's funny, this provoked quite a conversation in the office, particularly about Billy Idol, who we kind of... I know a lot of people listening to this will absolutely kind of go pale at this, but Barney and I both have something of a soft spot for <laughs> Billy Idol. I mean, he's the person you're, you weren't meant to like. Generation X were the punk band that you were meant to just mock. Yeah. And then he became this hilarious sort of sub-Elvis caricature when he went to Los Angeles, the, the major hit-making part of his career. But we've got a sort of sneaking regard for him as, a, you know, as, a, as great rock and roll well, I was sharing with you the experience I had of seeing a very early Billy Solo show in San Francisco. Yeah, uh-huh. it must have been about 1982, when he was just sort of being launched That's right. as this potential sort of, you know, pop idol in America. Billy Idol, pop idol. That was that was the, the concept. Yeah. Let's just let's just go for the jugular, really. And although it was absurd, and he was kind of preposterous, this you know sub rock and roll kind of cartoon. You, you couldn't help but kind of adore him, really. <laughs> it, was, it was, I remember really enjoying our, the show. Our, I mean, our, our, credi- yeah, our credibility is going right down the toilet. <laughs> that, went, that, went, that went years ago. Long time ago. I mean, the great thing about this, this piece by yeah. Chris is, is that he very much locates Billy in that kind of Nick Cohn aesthetic yes. of, of almost sort of self-referential, yep. you know, pop iconography. Yep. And it's a really, you know, he quotes from I Am Still the Greatest, says Johnny Angelo, the yes. Nick Cohn novel from 67. And he, he writes of Billy, smothered in junk jewellery, Billy looks like a walking pawn shop, rings, crosses, <laughs> beads, chains, studs. A black velvet cape reaches down to his cowboy boots, which have silver barbed tips. Beneath the cape, a 1950s drape jacket with on its back a larger-than-life colour portrait of the king, ten years dead today. Oh, that's Elvis. So, so he's actually interviewing him a decade after Elvis. Yeah. And they talk about Elvis and they talk about PJ Proby splitting his pants. <laughs> and it's just it's very amusing. Well, I hadn't realised there was a movie in development, a possible movie, mm-hmm. of another Nick Cohn novel, King Death, that Billy was going to be starring in mm-hmm. as a kind of... Doomed Elvis, <laughs> I got, you yeah. know. So it's um, he made some great records great. as well. I mean, you know, great inverted commas. I mean, you know, yeah, in careful. a cartoon, rock and roll cartoons. Sure. I mean, when I, I saw Generation X at the Royal College of Art, I guess seventy-seven, maybe. Mm. 
And even then, they were nothing like any of the other punk bands. For a start, they really wanted to play. They were trying to play properly. Mm. He was clearly wanting to be a rock and roll star, mm. even then. You know, he was the cutest punk to oh, come out of the whole he was London far too, scene. He was far too, far too, far too good looking. To but him and Paul, Paul Simmerden. Yeah, but Simmerden was in the Clash, whereas he was the front man of Gen yeah. X. You know, <laughs> but they had you know songs like "Dancing with Myself," which I always thought was a terrific song. Great song. Good. Amusing, yeah. light-hearted rock and roll that you know, one needn't take too seriously. No, and there were good tracks on those solo albums. We were listening to yeah. the, the cover he did of that William Bell song, To Be A Lover. Yeah. And I, I just remember thinking, well, that's pretty great yeah, yeah. For, for the 80s. Music sounded so awful then, and there's some <laughs> like, proper piano playing on it. So that was oh. cool. I mean, it's funny. That he's, I mean, he doesn't take himself too seriously. No. He kind of says, he talks about, you know, reading books, and that it's a good thing to read books, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but then he, he talks about reading William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade, and yeah. then and then a little later he talks about William Goldman's biography of Elvis Presley. <laughs> so he's got these two Goldmans mixed up. <laughs> but you know he has read Nick Cone, yeah. and you know he he sort of he does he knows some some of his stuff. You know he was always bright. I mean I believe I could be wrong about this. He went to London School of Economics. That you know really? he, yeah. he he was a bright. We got a couple of other interviews on Rock's Back Page which are really worth reading. Yeah. One, which is Neil Tennant's smash hits, which is just very, very funny, classic Neil Tennant stuff. And then the great Tom Hibbert one, where they're in Mallorca, and Bill is on holiday with his parents. <laughs> <laughs> so punk. It, so it's punk. absolutely great. And, and they were, what were they called? Can you remember? Uh, I can't remember. Joan, Joan and Bill. Joan and Bill Broad. That's right. William Broad, of course, was his real name. Anyway, that's a really great piece. Chris is a a very amusing writer. The second piece is about Jerry Marsden, Liverpool icon, whose cover of You'll Never Walk Alone is, of course, you know, ritually sung before every Liverpool game. So this is an interview from 97, and they reflect on the 1989 Cup final when Liverpool beat Everton. And um, after Never Hills... resist a chance to get football no. into this podcast, can you? <laughs> no, can't. I can't. Absolutely. And there's... <laughs> So they, they also mentioned the fact that after the Hillsborough disaster, um, Jerry Marsden was asked to open the match and he walked on the pitch and sung You'll Never Walk Alone, joined by 80,000 Liverpoolian voices. And Chris Borkas, what do the Everton fans sing? Nothing, says Jerry. They can't sing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an amusing piece. And Nick Cohn gets an, another name check here. And Nick Cohn apparently wrote that when the Mersey sound had faded... Uh, being Scouse is possibly the heaviest cross that any would-be pop star could bear. Now, this is, this is obviously at a time when it looks as though Liverpool will finally win the Premier League. Yes. They are unbeaten in I don't know how many games yep. now. over 30, I think. Over 30 games. Um, they only dropped two points so far this mm-hmm. season, haven't they? So they're on course, they're way ahead. How do we feel about happy. that? Happy. Happy. I feel happy about that. Yeah, too. well, I think we all like... Club as a manager. We love the Absolutely. Um, we love the way that Liverpool play. They play really thrilling, mm. thrilling football. Great. Definitely. Well, that's the football moment for this week's <laughs> podcast. Um,
Finally, a nod to the last of Chris's pieces, which is an interview with the great Solomon Burke, sometimes known as the Bishop of Soul. Um, <laughs> he had just released a great album, actually, called Don't Give Up On Me. That was good. That good was, album, was produced good. by Joe Henry. Yeah. And what I'd forgotten is that Joe had literally commissioned a bunch of great songwriters to write specifically for this album. Mm -hmm. And they included Dan Penn, mm -hmm. who wrote the title track. Dylan wrote a song. Mm -hmm. Costello wrote a song. Nick Lowe wrote a wonderful song. That was good, wasn't it? What was that? The Other Side of the Coin. Right. It's absolutely fantastic yeah. song. One of Nick's greatest songs. Van Morrison wrote a song. Tom Waits wrote I, a song. I, I'm, I'm very... The, the Joe yeah. Henry revival productions, I'm always slightly kind of no, uh, unsure about. Now, I think this is the one which really came off the best as a, as a total project. You know, I, I find young white producers getting old soul people into the studios kind of recreate... Well, Joe them. was one of the first. He was one of the it? first. And I've heard, he's, done, he's done a few, and, yeah. and but this is a really, really good record. He said he wanted to try and get a sound for this album somewhere between music from Big Pink and Sam Cooke's album Nightbeat. That's... I don't know whether he succeeded in that, but that, in a sense, is a sort of definition yeah, yeah. of that approach to retro Americana yeah. production in that in that decade. But I, I think it's a great album. You know, worship Solomon Burke. Anyway, that's Chris Bork and tons more know. Chris on RBP. Yes, if sir. Solomon Burke is the Bishop of Soul, who's the Pope of Soul? <laughs> <laughs> let's well, not, let's if, not go there. <laughs> you're going to find a, probably find a Catholic singer from New Orleans. <laughs> a black Catholic. Take a look Before you close the book Look at the other side of the coin. That's everything that's free on RBP. Pretty uh, good. It's a, it's a very good way to kick off 2020. Tell us, Mark, about everything that's not free. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, kicking off with the audio. Joan Byers interviewed by Angie Gill. Now, she, this is 1992. She'd just released an album, new album, Play Me Backwards. And she's on tour. They're backstage. And then they're towards the end of the interview, they're on, on the bus. And you know, she's an engaging, thoroughly intelligent, interesting woman. And she sort of, like, talks... She sort of gives her definition of folk and about how, you know, folk has changed and so on. She talks quite a lot about her activism, which is famous. And she's interesting about that. She says that basically when the Vietnam War ended, the unity of politics and music sort of collapsed. The, the activist music just really ceased to happen in America. And something that she sort of tried to keep going... You know, she talks about, like, you know, when she was signed at 17, and yeah. she, she just thought mm. that this is how music worked. And yeah. sort of, um, we'll play a clip where she talks about actually letting politics go, is allowing herself to become a singer of songs rather than singer of songs as a means of achieving political ends. Also, this time around, uh, I have, I think, a greater sense of what it means to enjoy myself. And that's part of the decision to let the politics go right now. It's fascinating to watch the pull in myself. But shouldn't I be saying this? Shouldn't I be, shouldn't I be fulfilling you know, different pockets of need in the, in the audience? And everything about this exercise is healthy. No, I shouldn't be right now. First of all, there is a new flank of very young people who um, 
somebody, a woman who interviewed me for a woman's magazine said that a lot of the older feminists have noses out of joint because these 20-year-olds are not deferring to them for everything, anything. They're just going about their business and, you know, if you want to come on our march, fine. And that was good news to me, you know, that at the moment I don't feel that, you know, I have to be directing traffic anymore. Don't have to play me backwards to get the meaning of my verse. You don't have to die and go to hell to feel the devil's soul. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I think that's really interesting. I think that's a really valid point as well. Yeah. Is that that has been a problem for political activism is that sometimes people who have been politically active can't let go of things that when someone that's younger comes and says actually we'd rather be doing it this way there's this sort of tension that actually makes it much more difficult to enact any kind of change because there's this infighting in in a political group I think that's correct I think also that political activists are as prone to nostalgia as anyone else somehow their time was a purer and better time and these kids with their Facebook and whatnot and Instagram, what actually. do they know about politics? Mm. When you actually have things which have occurred in recent years, like the Me Too movement, like the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the Occupy movement, and now with the climate activism, Greta Thunberg, is, is actually that kids are as, as, if not more, engaged politically now than they were back in the 60s, mm. the famous great 60s, when it was actually political activism was a university middle-class, mm. you, know, you know, ghetto to some mm. extent. Yes. So, so I, I think she makes very good points. Uh, to, Barney, mm. tell us about your shared middle names. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, you, you didn't think you'd not, forget, did you, did you Barney? I was secretly hoping that you would have forgotten. In the course of just mugging up a little bit on Joan, inevitably one goes to her Wikipedia page, where I learned that she shares a middle name with me. Which and we can leave it at that. <laughs> Yeah, it's not Tom, strangely. <laughs> yes. Shandos. Shandos. <laughs> Good, let's move on then. Well, um, go, 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 going back to this, um, <laughs> she, she, she also talks about loosening up musically in, in that, uh, like, she started, like, when she first recorded, she hated drums. She thought they were, like, the devil's... The work, work of the devil. The work of the right. devil. And, and, now, and she's learned to embrace rhythm, in, mm. you know, in, in, in her mm. middle age. Mm. Uh, and we'll play another clip. She became a... A songwriter, quite late. She had, before that, her, her early career was entirely as an interpreter of other people's songs. Mm. And she, she talks, interestingly, about becoming a songwriter, knowing that she's not very good at it, mm. and learning how to sort of be, be a songwriter within that sort of context. Simon told me this and it was perfect. They told me many years ago and I didn't really want to deal with it till now, but if you're not gifted in the way that Stevie Wonder or John Lennon or Bob Dylan is gifted, and even Dylan, but he's another kind of genius, uh, if you're not gifted that in that big a way, you start reinventing the wheel with your own music. And I was reinventing the wheel a lot. And on top of that, my music is art song prone to begin with, which interested record companies less and less and less. So it was um, a challenge. Go to Nashville. You know, Janice Ian was my biggest help. 
she just pushed. She said, you have to. You just, you know, you have, you, first of all, you can. The talent is there, but you have to learn something about the craft. Harumph, harumph, I didn't want to hear that, you know. But she was right. And then working with Kenny and Wally, they're one's from Texas and one's from Nashville. And, and they would, show, oh, I get so angry. Just because you know how to write poems, Joan, don't mean you know how to write a song. And I would just fume when they were right. I know that. <laughs> yeah. That's great stuff. He comes across really well, quite yeah. humble, yeah. quite self-aware. You know, I, yeah. I, I, like I, I never her. loved her. No, I, I, always I, found I don't her, like her music particularly. No, but... I found her way of singing too pure. Yeah, um, it's not too... my kind of music. No, it no. is. It is. I quite agree. It's too pure. But... I've never, never been a, a huge fan of her voice, mm-hmm. even though I kind of understand why it's all supposedly supernatural mm-hmm. qualities mesmerise so many people in the late 50s sure. and early 60s. But I do think she's she's a thoroughly good thing, yep. Joan Baez, and I think she's conducted herself as a public figure, as, a, as an activist, and as a musician, she's conducted herself admirably. Yep. You know, she's, we're going to go off at the end of the show with a really amusing clip about how she refused to pay tax, which was going to be spent on weapons. Mm. So she withheld a chunk of her tax, which the percentage she worked out would be sent huh. And it didn't really work. No, <laughs> no. I mean, but, just re-familiarising myself with her story a little bit. I, you know, it, one remembers, of course, that her father was Mexican, born right. in Mexico, and she so she experienced racism. Mm-hmm. You know, she wasn't just a middle-class, girl from california and then and then boston and hanging out with harvard folk singers she wasn't just this pure pure sort of earth madonna figure that the media constructed she knew how to actually experience some of this stuff Mm -hmm. she also heard martin luther king speaking i think in 1956 before she even played her first show yeah she was as i'm sure many listeners will know she was one of the great champions of bob dylan who treated her not terribly well in, in, in return. <laughs> um, but, enough. I mean, without without Joan's patronage and bringing him on stage at the Newport Folk Festival and so forth, would Dylan have had quite the trajectory that his career did? Maybe not. She did an awful lot for him. She's done an awful lot for a lot of people. Yep. Um, and she's so identified with... Well, actually, it was interesting. You were saying about talking about her songwriting. She hadn't written a song for 27 years... I believe, this is what it says on Wikipedia. (laughs) She hadn't written a song for 27 years until she wrote a song about Trump called Nasty Man in 2017. It took Trump to to rekindle the muse. But I really enjoyed listening to the the interview. It's, it's what, like half an hour or something? It's Um, it's the late Andy Gill. 40 minutes. Somewhere in America. Yeah. uh, yeah. Yes, and and Andy's a very good interview. Yeah, it's a nice conversation, isn't it? Yeah, that's good stuff. So... What 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 else, Marco? Right, well, he said consulting his notes. Uh, Ronnie Lane of the Small Faces talking to Melody Maker in 66. Plonk. Plonk Lane. Plonk Lane. Uh, he says, I got a letter from a girl saying, why do I wear so many suits now? Because it made me look older. She said, after all, you're getting on a bit. And I'm only 20. Too old and 20. Which is just, just fantastic. You're over I'm... the hill, Jasper. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. Bugger. Um, Why didn't anyone tell me sooner? Well, We've indeed. been trying to tell we, you, we have, for a oh, while. I see, that's what that was. Yes. Fast-forwarding <laughs> a couple of years in Record Mirror, David Griffiths meets Madeleine Bell. And this is really nothing to do with Madeleine Bell, who's an admirable woman, was in that really awful band, Blue Mink, has been had a long career as a session singer in this country, an American black African-American woman who's lived in England for a long time. 
But this is really funny. He goes around to Chaz Chandler's flat to interview her because she's staying... Chaz is on tour with Jimmy and uh, she's staying in the flat. Also present was a lovely lady friend of Jimmy's. And during the afternoon, a couple of equally pretty girls dropped into chat and listened to some sounds. Plenty to drink, lots of good records, four luscious young women, and your humble scribes sitting there, eyes bulging, especially when Madeline got up and danced, which she did frequently, explaining, I always feel like dancing when I'm happy. Hey, listeners, if you could see Mark, now he's, he's sort of doing a, a kind of leather-skirted... <laughs> yes, yeah, so the, the, the strap line on, on this article is David Griffiths meets the leather mini-skirted mini <laughs> Madeline Bell. It's I, a scene out of Austin it's, Powers. Yeah, it's, it's, really, it's, it's, it's exactly that. It I is, think. and it's a 1968 period piece. Sugar, you're sweeter Next thing was from September 1970, Richard Green's fabulously inaccurate obituary of Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> um, I remember you proving this and just complaining no, the whole it, way it through. It was just the funniest thing. Uh, for example, here we go. Jimi Hendrix was christened James Morris, sick RBP Ed Hendrix, and says with customary humour his stage name was 88% from his birth certificate and 12% misspelling. He was born in Seattle, Washington on November 27th, 1945. Sick RBP Ed. <laughs> it's just the wrong date. He's going to shave three Wrong name, wrong <laughs> date. And later on he says, he always looked forward to going back to meet his mother, sick RBP Ed and family in America. His mother's been dead for years. Oh, it's cool. I mean, Do you it's, think it's, The Beast had written this after being on the lap? Yes, well, the previous re- remind us to the listeners who haven't had it. Richard Green was famously called The Beast and was um, just basically a massive, drink. massive drink. He actually got to interview Bob Dylan once, I think after the Isle of Wight Festival, went up to his hotel room got so drunk that he came downstairs and couldn't remember a word Bob Dylan had said to him. And he was also notorious for reviewing gigs from the pub over the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and writing a bitch. And writing a bitch, which is just riddled with an accuracy. Because he knew Hendrix and interviewed yeah. Hendrix. It's I mean, very by that date, wouldn't Hendricks have died at 24 instead of 27? Yeah, that's right. So yeah. well, that's, that's precise, we have to completely rewrite right. the history of the 27 yeah, yeah. club. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> it's brilliant. Moving on to 76 phonograph records, I think a rather wonderful Coleman Andrews interviewing Weather Reports, Joe Zawinul oh. and Wayne Shorter. The um, report, as we are fond of calling them. As we know them in the office. <laughs> or the weather. He says, we're always happy with the group because if we're not happy, we change it. There are a lot of musicians out there in the world. And that's actually really true of this band. That you have this core of those two and mm. a rotating cast of musicians mm. around them for, what, a decade or so mm. more? Yeah. This is 76, I think... At this point, where the report were really hitting their stride, it was Black uh, Market. Black Market, just, yeah, Black Market just come out, and then the next one was Heavy Weather. Heavy the, Weather Report. Heavy Weather Report. They were really, really hitting, the, hitting yeah. their stride in a big, a big they made way. Some great records. They I mean, really did, didn't they? Yeah. We, we could I mean, broadly know, agree on as them. As people who don't, well, I don't know about Jasper, but we don't really love jazz fusion much of. But, but they were the acceptable they were, face. Well, they were the exception that proved, often proved mm, I think so. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of shite jazz Just fusion huge, in the world. Yeah, yards of it. But yeah. some of it, I mean, some, some of it is good. Some of it is know, good. Like but but where the report, report stuff really, really stands up. And I, I think you've got a couple of things there. I think Zawarul, well, both Shorter and Zawarul were very good writers. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Really know? great. Um, I mean, Zawarul proved it years back with the Cannonball Adley course. Yeah. That, you know, mercy, mercy, mercy. Mercy, mercy, you know. He gets a call out in the, in he, the sort of spoken he, intro. He, yes. he, he does. And also that Shorter's an extraordinarily self-effacing player. 
uh, for a tenor player, normally jazz tenor players are all over the place. Mm. They're all over you, right? They're yeah. all over the tune. Short has the ability to absolutely restrain himself and maybe just play the sparsest melody mm. lines and things mm. like that. Yeah. Um, more in the line of Sonny Rollins than... Uh, I'd, I'd say much more in the line of Sonny Rollins, but he, even different from that... It's, yeah, no, it, true. It, I'm not it, saying he's the he, same he, kind of player, no, but he, sees he his plays tenor, the tune. His tenor's part of the arrangement rather than being necessarily the a solo line. instrument. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is why Joni Mitchell has used him on so many yes. tracks. He absolutely yeah. worships him. Yeah. Moving on, Cream nineteen seventy eight. This is the letter from Britain column. Simon Frith was at this point writing, and he says, you know, he, he's the, the broad piece is about how the disconnect between what rock critics think and what rock buyers buy. You know, he says that you know the, there is a huge difference between what's on the radio and what's in the charts and what's been written about approvingly in the music press, particularly in America, particularly mm. in America. Mm-hmm. But he also says this, this is, Asian rock stars like to compare themselves to B.B. King and Muddy Waters, men whose music has grown up with them. But the real comparison is John Wayne still playing the romantic lead even as his bones get as stiff as his boots. Mm. Now, this is 1978, when he's talking basically about people of maximum 40 years old. You still hear Keith Richards saying exactly that, that he regards himself as more like Muddy Waters or B.B. King than, you know, yeah. which is... Palpable bullshit, I'm afraid. You know, so I, I, th- I think Frith gets that about right. <laughs> oh, now this, is, this is really interesting. Dave McCulloch reviewing the debut albums from the Raincoats and the Mekongs. Mm. This actually, uh, to some extent, refers back to the, some of what we were talking about with James Baldulmer. And he really dislikes both albums. And Dave McCulloch was a guy who wrote a lot about post-punk. This mm. is, sounds... December 79. So You'd expect him to approve to them, approve wouldn't them. you? He says the raincoats are a rock and roll equivalent of those Notting Hill Gate, Westbourne Park Grove, as he calls it, a place which doesn't quite exist. Action groups that rob from the rich to give to the poor and spend their time obsessed with self-righteous do-gooding. Their position is really comfortable because their attitudes are small. The raincoats, the album, is typical of modern rock, overt politicising because it is an album void of love. And actually, he really cuts to the chase of what was so wrong with so much post-punk right there. The lack of love. Well, the, 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 it's, it's, it's politically strident and attitudinizing. Yeah. And actually, the beauty isn't allowed in. Not a lot of warmth. Or... Warmth and beauty aren't, aren't sort of... Well, I would argue there are moments on that Raincoats album that are... Fair enough. But I, I but, think, but I think there he's, is he's, a, there's he, a beauty to some of it. But I think he's making a really mm. interesting and quite acute broad point there. Of course, uh, Kurt Cobain was a, would have disagreed would he with he vehemently, have. wouldn't he? He was a massive raincoat. Yeah, I saw them two, three times. I played my art school. I saw them at the Acklam Hall, and I just found them so drab. It's not true. They were a bit it's down. A oh. Drab name, the raincoat. Well, yeah, but that was that was the the nature of the time. Yeah. That, 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 every yes, band yes. was called something well, like that. Well, because everyone wore raincoats. The audience, the audience, the paint drying. The audience at Acklam Hall would all be wearing raincoats and they'd be shuffling around, flogging their fanzines, saying why. The Mekons, of course, were from Leeds they were. originally, yeah, weren't yeah. they? And John Langford went on to do all kinds of quite interesting things in America. Sure, um, I, I never listened very much to the Mekons, no. but they were all they were all playing gigs together and supporting well, each other. Well, and I mean, triple I mean, bills at that time. A classic bill would be Strictly Blizzy yeah. with raincoats yeah. and 
Prague vet. Yeah, yeah and you got a free raincoat. And you got a free raincoat with a ticket. Convenient. When it rained as you left the venue. It's cheap. I mean, it usually fell apart. My memory of that winter of 79 in London, I went to a lot of those sort of shows, partly because they're really cheap to go to, you know, is that everyone had a cold, you know, everyone was miserable, Thatcher had just been elected, you know, England felt like it was going down to you. Kill me now. It's time for a post revival, I was going to say. Have we got raincoats? Have we got raincoats? We'll start wearing raincoats. I think we'll have to. We'll have cold time in the office, Uh, mainly because of Paul. (laughs) Moving on to Sounds 1982, again, David Cullock. This time, he did this interview with Tony Wilson of Factory Records, and he didn't do it face-to-face. He wrote him a series of questions and got a written reply from Tony Wilson. That's how this was done. Tony Wilson, even on writing, can comes up with a good quote. It's just in the nature of that. He says, how much does the average record buyer know about the people who run Rough Trade or CBS, or need to know for that matter? I mean, his point one is, why are you interviewing me? You know, He says, if rock is to pop what the whistle test is to top of the pops, then give me Radio 4, dignity, humour and intelligence. Like, <laughs> it's, it's just classic bullshit from Tony Wilson, who... who we all love and miss, you know, his, yeah. his death was a loss, you know, but... He was a fabulous sort of megalomaniac, absurd, absurd. wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm not very good at it. I mean, <laughs> he ran record labels which, like, would lose money on records because the sleeve cost more to print than it cost to... You, what I always love is that fine. image of him. I mean, I think you see it on YouTube when he's presenting. So it goes. So it goes yeah, in Manchester yeah. And he's, he's clearly just washed his hair. <laughs> and it, it's also so <laughs> antithetical to, like, Joy Division. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's yeah. quite sort of... It's a good show, though. Bushy. I mean, and... uh, one, of the, one of the Pistols' few TV appearances <laughs> and so it goes... First time I ever saw Joy Division was on so it goes. Oh, I mean, those Joy Division performances are just incredible. Yeah. So he, you know, he, yeah, he was a yeah, great, and, great know, man. The Hacienda and Factory and all of that sort of stuff. You know, without him, a lot of really great stuff wouldn't have happened. Mm. But he was also absurd. I um, only saw him, you know, with the naked eye once, which was at his in the city conference up in Manchester. And he was interviewing Brian Eno. It really was a sort of battle of the sort of Titanic pop egos. <laughs> but it, was, it was a really interesting yeah, conversation, yeah. as you might expect. Good stuff. Musician 1988, J.D. Considine, interviewing a whole bunch of drummers about what it is to be a drummer, about how drummers relate to this new vangle machine called the drum machine, which is really taking over at that time. Um, one of his interviewees is Stuart Copeland. Mm-hmm. This is about two years after the police have broken up, and it's very funny. It, it, Stuart Copeland says, Your number one enemy is usually the singer of the group. It's a constant <laughs> battle. The singer well, will try... the singer is Sting. <laughs> you know, apparently, Co- Copeland used to have a picture of Sting stuck to his snare drum and be hitting it, going, <laughs> fuck you. you know. um, he says, anyway, the singer will try and sing all over <laughs> your drum fills, usually just for the big chorus, which is your big opportunity for the major fill. They want to sing... Oh, oh, baby, or something in name like that. <laughs> what you do is you have to start your drum fill two bars before the chorus so they run out of breath. By the time they run out of breath, you're still banging away, then you hit the big chorus. Which is kind of pretty good. Uh, in terms of the, talking about the drum machine stuff, it's very often the drummer regards the drum box as a threat to his existence, which means that the keyboard player goes out and buys the drum box. Then it's open warfare. Uh, Stuart Copeland is actually... I, yeah. I love seeing him interviewed. He did that a rather poor series about different instruments in a rock band. I think there's um, a new, there's there's a a new Kate, series tonight no, well, anyway, the, the, on drummers, which he's oh, really? presenting. Well, so it's very timely. If, if so, great. He's good. Because on, that was the best show of the lot, the one about the drums that he presented. 
telling me stuff I never knew mm. that the basically the drum kit was invented in New Orleans by the invention of the kick drum pedal by an, by a jazz drummer. You know, which mm. is something just one didn't know. Mm. He's always engaged, mm. and he's also pretty pretty super drummer. Just briefly, smash its Tom Doyle interviewing Black Box, the ride-on-time Italo house merchants. Catherine Cunot, the woman who allegedly but actually was nowhere near the voice on that record, says, I'm just well-shaped. I have good shoulders and I am tall. Most women wear shoulder pads. I do not need them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a qualification for greatness, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, Stephen Wells, apparently in 1994, speed was the hip new drug. Frankly, that passed me by entirely. He says, as with any drug, speed will not turn you from being a dull twat into a creative genius. You will merely become a dull twat who talks too much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Stephen Wells. Wonderful. uh, What I love about Stephen Wells is that he and I I probably wouldn't have had a single record in common in our record collections. His taste was just appalling. But I could just read him all day. He's Mm. just fabulous. Mm. Lastly, the wonderful Tom Cox we talked about the last podcast, interviewing Lucinda Williams, The Guardian, in 1998. Car Wheels on a Gravel Road had just come out, which is just such a great record. She says, I see the whole thing like a pitch for a, a little movie, explains Williams. Keeping things descriptive is very important to me. When you're writing, you should always put the name of the town on the songs instead of just being generic and saying, I was walking down a street. What street? What town? What state? Mm. And her, the songs on that album are full of those sorts of yes. details, you know, and they're, they're marvellous. She was a really great writer, yeah, wasn't she? I mean, she still is. Oh, well, I mean, know, her I dad was a poet, that's so right. she was very schooled in, mm, in yes. literature. Um, um, but and, and this interview talks quite a lot about her, her, her southern sort of bohemian roots and yeah. so on and so forth, and how she had to return to the south, having been in Los Angeles for a while, because she needed the south to sort of infer, inform what she was doing. And also that album went through... Serious growing pace. It's three it? years to I record. Mean, yeah, with different producers, tried, she tried three stabs at it before right. she got what she wanted. And yet, as Tom Cox yeah. is in this, it sounds like it's recorded in 10 minutes. Yeah, you know? yeah, I mean, yeah. It really yeah. does. It's extraordinary. Maybe, maybe it took her that long to get to some kind of simplicity Possibly. around it. She said, I actually write better when I'm feeling contented. When I'm feeling lousy, I just want to watch TV, which I think is just quite <laughs> nice because so many people, you could be yeah, tortured. You must be a tortured yeah. artist, yeah. yeah. So that's, that that's stick. You can that's... write about torture, but you've got to be in a good mood to do uh, it. Basically, or you'd be watching TV. Or you'd be watching TV. <laughs> what about TV? Feeling tortured. Sorry, over to you, Jasper. I'm going to go straight on to July 2000, when David Stubbs interviews 23 Skidoo. Aha! In The Wire. Talking about James Blood-Ulmer. They were a band who were very influenced by James mm. Blood-Ulmer, without mm. a shadow of a doubt. Absolutely, and it's quite a long interview. It's quite interesting. I mean, they were... Mark, tell us, what were they like? Because they were kind of initially a sort of 80s... They were a post-punk band. Post-punk mm. band. Yeah, they were an absolute classic of that period, post-punk band. But one of the ones, like a certain ratio, who looked to African-American music for... And, less, and world music, and world if we're allowed to call them that oh, anymore. Yes. But they were certainly much more interested... They had a much well, broader appreciation of... Well, they were into rhythm in a way. Yeah. That, yeah. So, you know, did I like them? I think they were. They were probably one of the reasons why I loved James Blood Ulmer. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, that sketch from Lynx, Lynx. who were a, a, a North London black funk band, yeah. he joined Twenty Three Skidoo because I think he felt being a black R and B musician was inherently far too limiting, and that he was going to get more stuff done in the context of a band who were quite ambitious musically. 
Yeah. And I think he's probably right to do so. And so they made a few albums, and then they sort of didn't make one for about 15 years, mm-hmm. I think. And then this is when a new album is, is coming out. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this was the real comeback moment, For them wasn't it, in 2000. And it's it's an interesting interview. They talk about that. They, they take themselves quite seriously, but less seriously than they did. They've sort of mellowed a little bit, sure. I, you get the sense. And Sketch, who we are just talking about, says... One of the main strengths of the band is that it is whatever we feel like doing in that moment. If you're status quo, it must be pretty bad because you have to spend your whole life status quo shaped. It's <laughs> <laughs> the shape of a denim vest. <laughs> That's good. And another funny thing I thought was so their name. However, despite its roots in a William S. Burroughs text, the name 23 Skidoo somehow engendered the mistaken belief that the group was part of the new wave of brisk... Upful little white funksters. The clipped yeah. riffs of their second single on the long defunct fetish seven inch last words, perhaps. We were very conscious of being lumped in with a bunch of very fluffy pop bands, recalls Alex. There was an early face interview which we linked with ABC, Heaven Seventeen and Haircut One Hundred. Yeah. The good thing about that was we had all these people coming down to see us expecting straight pop. And that was when we said, Right, okay, this is who we've been waiting for. We've got you. Now this is what we're really about. <laughs> I think that's quite and they all funny. walked out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean Heaven Seventeen and Twenty Three Skidoo. Not natural no. bedfellows. Mm. It was because of the numbers, wasn't it? Haircut yeah. 100, 23 Skidoo, and Heaven There's 17. A pa- There's a panamerging. There's a panamerging. So, yeah. Maybe C is the alphabet, so some, somehow. Well, there we go. Next up, White Stripes in Liverpool in 2001. In Liverpool the, again. Liverpool again. Um, That's a pattern. Dave Simpson goes to see them for The Guardian. This is their sort of when they're really just emerging as... We saw them on that tour. We we saw them at the Astoria. Yeah, we we did. The original untamed spirit of rock has been produced, marketed and airbrushed to near extinction, but the White Stripes have that spirit in abundance. To hear them live, Jack's guitars sound like short-circuiting electric pylons is like hearing the very corpse of pop itself being given electrical jolt. Jack's hysterical vocals fall somewhere between screaming Jay Hawkins and a tequila-crazed Mexican bandit. His elfin drumming sister has replicated the sound of a cabbage landing on a dustbin lid. <laughs> <laughs> when that's we when, great. when we saw them, I was kind of whispering in the ear, he sounds exactly like the bass player from the Sweet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that is one vocal influence that Dave Simpson omitted to mention. Yeah. But it's, 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 I mean, Dave Simpson really likes them. He does sort of admit that something that is this old world cannot be the future of rock and roll, yeah. but by wreaking havoc with rock's infancy, the White Stripes are certainly changing its course. I think that's fair to say. We enjoy wind. We, we, I love them. I have to say, um, I, you know, they they, they were they were those first jolting co- rock and roll. Those back first to couple life. of albums. Also, I think he's very unfair about the sister because I think she's actually a terrific drummer. I mean, because she's just because she's minimalist. Yeah, she's regarded as being no good. Yeah. Also, but, she does have a name. I mean, he doesn't. He calls Jack by his name and then just refers to her as the sister, yeah. which is a bit, <laughs> which is a bit <laughs> crap. Really. Exactly what I'm yeah, just saying. Exactly. <laughs> Meg. Um, Meg. But 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 I have to say that when we saw them live, I was really impressed by her. Yeah. I thought there was almost Bonham-like solidity to what she's doing. Yeah. You know, I agree. You know, with lots of space. Well, does have a great foil for what he was doing. Yeah. Which which, which was extraordinary. I think he is a. Phenomenal. I, I thought that, I thought those first two three albums were really really interesting. Yeah. Steel was uh, the one I really loved. Uh, absolutely, so, so and then much. then he got boring in a, in a real hurry after that. So, mm. But it's such a reaction. No, in the end, he's such a reactionary. You, no, you know. I, I I have to challenge that because <gasps> I think no, I really don't. I think it's really unfair. I think he has done a lot of uh, very interesting things with those idioms and those forms. I mean, if you listen to them, I'm like get behind me, Satan. This this just. It's so diverse. It really no, 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 isn't no, no, slavish in any way. Oh, I just find it 
deathly same. This isn't Mark. And I think you're sonically, wrong. just the way in which they record them, the noise mm. they're trying to get mm. is about some paradigm of 60s analog technology. I, I, I really beg to disagree. Okay. I think I think he's and I think his solo albums are blunderbuss. There's really interesting things on there as well. What was that I, other I ghastly, just don't what think was that ghastly band that he The Raconteurs? The Raconteurs. Oh, Oh. Listeners, write to us and tell us where you fall <laughs> on this vital issue. We should have a poll. You know? <laughs> but I think "Steady as She Goes" was 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 a it's classic kind of a banger, single. actually. Yeah, great record, a banger. Okay, um, I don't love all the raconteurs. I must confess, no. but I still think Jack is a, is just he's, he's, he's one of the towering character. figures of he the last fifteen years. I think so, last twenty years. So there we go. Moving we'll agree on. to disagree. <laughs> a slight, a slight jump. It's 2015 to Beyonce. Hurrah! This is a, a review of Becoming Beyonce: The Untold Story by J. Randy Tarabarelli, who's sort of that name, pop biographer. Uh, <laughs> What's he called again? J. Randy. J. Randy Tarabarelli. No, <laughs> I can't even close say enough. it. Close enough. Yeah, close <laughs> enough. But so. It's interesting. Lisa Verico writes about it, and the biography talks about her allegedly abusive father, kind of similar figure to Michael Jackson's father mm-hmm. in that way. So it's quite a, you know, a tough story on that front because he seems to have really decided that his daughter is going to become yeah, yeah. a superstar. Mm. But one of the things that Lisa Verico kind of draws from the story is that Beyonce is actually just quite dull. Sorry. She doesn't get anything about Beyonce, who Mm. seems also to have just decided to be this pop superstar Mm. without much character. What becomes dispiritingly clear is that the singer is perfect for pop's digital age, as a beautiful screen onto which big brands can project their product and pay handsomely. So valuable is Beyonce's image that she no longer gives interviews, referring to promote her aspirational life, quotation marks, on Instagram instead. On the basis of this book, what's behind the image isn't especially interesting. That's really interesting because, in a way, Solange has positioned herself... As, as the, the interesting as Knowles. The, as, as, as the human being with some backstory. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of truth in that. That, 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 that Beyonce is such an artfully contrived yeah. set of images. I mean, her and Jay-Z, right? They're the biggest sort of superstar They're a royal couple, couple yeah. aren't they? And the Harry they and Meghan of... They don't really sort of do much that's of societal value in the position they're in. Sure. You know, what has... I mean, Jay-Z, what has he done for musicians when he claims to, you know, want to... He's founded Tidal. I mean, mm-hmm. yes. great. <laughs> Congrats, you know? Yes. Like, I mean, you, you kind of would like them to be a bit more substantial as individuals. Yeah. You know, given that they're at the peak mm-hmm. of superstars. It's also frustrating because when she first emerged as part of Destiny's Child, who actually musically I always preferred to her solo work, I thought Destiny's Child was really, really interesting. Lisa Verico agrees. Is that she did seem like kind of quite an interesting individual. Yeah. And then rapidly, all the edges got knocked off. My counter-argument would be that I don't think any... After Lemonade, I don't think anyone could accuse Beyoncé of being uninteresting. I, I, musically, you know. she, you know, I think Lemonade was really, was really interesting. I don't say I liked it very much, but that's a different issue. But the fact no. is, it was an ambitious, ambitious thing to do. Ambitious product, and that's, you know, but totally she had, reasonable. But, but, but this sort of this immaculate 
the curated public Absolutely. image sure. is this year. And, and so Solange is quite interesting. There's sort of like, hey, look, there's I mean, another the, member the of the fight fan. in the elevator and all that stuff. Yeah. There was the bit between her and Jay-Z and, and how that was all just brushed under the rug. I mean, nobody ever... There was CCTV footage of Solange attacking Jay-Z in an elevator. <laughs> It's a great, great moment. It was all kind of swept mm, under because yeah. it right. doesn't agree with that doesn't, media persona. accord with the narrative. It's interesting. I mean, mm. you know, I do think that she's made some great music. Yeah. I think that she's a really important pop figure. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I think she's a little bit overrated. I think she's worshipped. She's, you know, yeah. the queen of pop. That's yes. the image. Yeah. And I think in a sense that's a product of the media age we live in. It's, you know, whether it's something that she has contrived or it's just just inherent. And I think, yeah, that's the thing that Lisa Vega points out. It's like perfect for pop's digital age. Like, she fills a a very useful gap for Mm -hmm. people that are trying to make money from music. And I think that's interesting. Lisa agrees with me so much about so many things. Good, isn't it? She agrees with me about everything. I don't think think Beyonce's bad by any stretch. I I like a lot of her music a lot. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, what we've just said. Yeah. Next up... Panic at the Disco. (laughs) (laughs) This is the first piece from a new writer that we've got, Pip Williams, in a New Zealand magazine, Kudema. Although Pip is English, so I don't know how they ended up writing for the New Zealand magazine, but so be it. Interviewing Brendan Urie of Panic at the Disco, although at this stage he is the only member of Panic at the Disco. Everyone else has sort of jumped ship, I think. Although he was always kind of a bit of a one-man band, but he had band members and then... By this point, he's just a one-man band, straight up. And it's funny, because he's quite scattered, not super self-aware, but quite funny. Talks about Frank Sinatra and Brian Wilson, and there's a sort of wide range of different people that he claims to be influenced by. We listened to some of the record the other day. It was and awful. Detested it. We loathed it. it. it we really, really loathed just it. Just ghastly. But I, somehow, reading the interview, I couldn't bring myself to dislike him. <laughs> you know, he he's... Not very sort of thoroughgoing or deep, but I mean, he, he says things that sort sort of make sense, but in quite a sort of mm. poppy kind of way. It's, 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 it's interesting. It's, it's a curious. One of the things that one did over New Year's Eve's, you know, r- ridiculously <laughs> one does is watch Jules Holland's absurd. One doesn't in my household. No, well, and one of the Not bands mine. on was the Stereophonics. And I just watched my jaw on my chest at how moronic this reiteration of old rock and roll tropes was. Just dreadful. And I felt very much the same thing mm. listening to Panic at the Disco. Uh, but then Panic, they're not the stereophonics. Like, no. Can you just contextualise? I mean, it's a name that listeners may be aware of. I mean... But who, who are they? They are a band, sort of mid-noughties, emerging... The sort of protégés of Fallout Boy, okay. who are a kind of poppy, slightly punky, sort of shouty okay. vocal kind of. Well, there's certainly American... shouty vocals in well, like, yeah, so oh, a little bit, a little bit music hallish almost. Yeah. Like there's this kind yeah. of yeah. there's this showmanship yeah. about that right. about that group of bands I, where it's uh, about big triumphant productions and all of this. Right. I, I, I think the, the point I was making is that what, why they remind me of Stereophonics is that it's bands just digging out the same old 
busted tropes of rock and roll and regurgitating yet again, you know. Uh, just boring. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan of the music, really. I mean, I don't think that it's just regurgitation of the same rock and roll tropes. I think it's it's more sort of multifarious than that. It's regurgitation of a whole lot of tropes in this kind of weird mishmash mm-hmm. of sort of this turning pot of stuff that I can't make sense of on a lot of their tracks. But he does say, and I mean, this is, again, what I was talking about when it comes to his sort of slightly superficial but nevertheless sometimes interesting thoughts that he says you're going to listen to a song differently if you're just sitting around somewhere listening on your phone as opposed to sitting in a dark room listening to a vinyl album it's going to be a totally different experience and I mean okay we've had this discussion about vinyl and how it's not about the vinyl but we were talking about in the context of that 2010 to 2019 in review article by Simon Reynolds great piece for the Guardian the New Year period and you know that is a valid thing Mm. to think about on that front it's like well it's about conscious listening. Mm-hmm. And yes. so even though he's expressing it in this slightly hackneyed, you know, listening on vinyl, it's not about listening on vinyl per se, it's about listening, you know, choosing to listen. And that's the point it's he's an really immersive making. experience. And I, and I, think, and yeah. I think that's a valid point to yeah, be no, making. Yeah, no, that's, that's fine. Look, the man may well make valid points. He just doesn't sure. make valid music. Champagne, cocaine, gasoline, and most things in Great, well, that's that's it from me. <laughs> One thing, just briefly referring back to James Ardulmer, the scandal is that the album we're talking about, Are You Glad to Be in America, isn't on Spotify. Yes. In fact, it's not available anywhere in streaming terms. So if any of you know anyone who's got any say in this matter, correct this monumental deficiency. Calling Rob Fitzpatrick. <laughs> well, I think we're bowing out on d- that d- note, d- Didn't we? you choose any piece to talk about, Barney? No. Oh. I didn't, well, because, you know... Shuttle Shandos, as we... You did, that, you, did that, you did that our first Lizzo piece, I should just... Uh, yeah, yeah, I see that you've got Lizzo. I know you you can talk perhaps more enthusiastically about Lizzo than you can about Panic Disco. <laughs> perhaps. I mean, we've talked a lot about Lizzo, but David Benham goes to see her, this is, you know, in November at Brixton Academy, a gig that I mentioned, actually, when we were talking about really sold out in, like, mm-hmm. ten seconds. Yeah, yeah. But David Benham loves it. You know, I can't remember the last time I saw a crowd that loved anything as much as this crowd loved Lizzo. Yeah. You know, she's just a fabulous star. She's yeah. great. I think, you know, there's no need to go into depth about her Am again. Am I right that so in that piece he mentions the fact that he had seen her five years before? Yes. In yeah, I mean, she has been playing Lizzo. There's a hole in the wall in Brighton. So I, I hadn't realised she, she would have played her first... UK shows as long ago as that. Yeah, yeah. no, she. she um, it's just that last year catapulted her into oh, superstar. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Well, so that we will now bow out. On that note, just to say that we have the great Laura Barton coming in as our guest next week. Fantastic. Which we'll look forward to immensely. Very much. It remains for me to wish you again a happy new year, if such a thing is really conceivable in these times. Torrid times. (laughs) times. Terrifying times. But it's great to be back. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from... It's goodbye from me and from my colleague Shandos. (laughs) And it's goodbye from (laughs) me, Jasper. (laughs) And we're going to go out with this last clip of Joan Baez. We are indeed. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Bye. Farewell, Angelina, the bells of the crowd are being stolen by bandits I must follow the sound Not paint, just tax, tax element for yeah. defence yeah. How did you get away with that? Oh, I didn't, they came and took the money right smack out of the till at the concert Some, Sometimes they did that, yeah If they couldn't find what they wanted in various banks they would come and do that And I just never helped them, that was all And they came to the house and said well, I wanted me to change my mind and I said 
No. And then um, they wanted me to come down to the local build office, and I did. And then when I got there, I thought, I shouldn't have done that. It's not, this is their job. So I started, I was feeling very thoughtful and upset. And I said, I'm, I'm upset. And the man said, um, well, you'll probably feel better as soon as you can get this straightened out. In other words, sign another dotted line. I said, no, no, you don't understand. That's not what I'm upset about. I said, this is your job, you know, and I shouldn't even be here. But farewell, Angelina. The sky is erupting. I must go where it's quiet. That was Joan Byers in conversation with Andy Gill in 1992, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. <laughs> Heavy on the fucking shandles. <laughs> <laughs> to get one last shandles in there. Always. Uh, I'm Never dead. Enough I'm shandles. dead. Yeah. <laughs> it's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens. We're heading into 2020, and it's never been easier to hear music. Old, new, local, international. But has it ever been harder to make sense of popular music? Is this golden age of ubiquity producing great new music? How long will our Uber access to everything ever recorded last? How did the 20th century produce so much great popular music? Is there any chance the 21st century will match it? I'm Nate Wilcox, and I'm obsessed with trying to figure out what the heck happened with popular music in the last 170 years and where we might be headed. Join me as I talk to some of the best music historians on earth. People like Ed Ward, Robert Criscow, Stanley Booth, Ted Joya, Elijah Wald, Susan Whitehall, and Peter Doggett to get the history, the theory, and try to figure out how popular music happens on a Let It Roll podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.